Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 16th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Good evening, I'm William Hosea. Hannah Mae Randall is an administration and learning assistant at the Holocaust Exhibition and Learning Center located in Huddersville, England. In 2019, she wrote a review for the film, Where Hands Touch, a film that explores the persecution of black and mixed race people under the Nazis. The film's writer and director, Ama Asant, was inspired by a photograph of a black schoolgirl taken in Nazi Germany. In providing an historical perspective, Ms. Randall shared that during the Nazi era and the Second World War, many black German citizens were persecuted deported and ultimately killed by the Nazis as they did not fit the ideology of the Aryan master race. When the Nuremberg laws were introduced in 1935, they originally only applied to Jewish people. However, they were soon extended to include black people. Black people and those of mixed race heritage were subjected to forced sterilization from 1937 after which they had to sign agreements that they would not marry or have sexual intercourse with those of German blood. This element is a key aspect of the film. Now, the, the persecution of Black people steadily increased as Nazi rule went on, resulting in incarceration and concentration camps for nearly, at some estimates, 25,000 Black Germans. However, unlike Jewish people, disabled people, Roma, and Sinti, and these are people identified as gypsies, Blacks people were not systemically targeted for mass uh, killing. Nevertheless, all Black people were persecuted under the Nazis, but their individual experiences differed widely. That said, here to educate us on Blacks in Nazi Germany are Dr. Robbie Aitken, Professor of Imperial History at Sheffield Hallam University in the United Kingdom, and Liz Mitchell, our very own Bring It On producer of Dark Past, Bright Future. Dr. Aiken and Liz, welcome to Bring It On. Hello, glad to be here. Yeah, very glad to be here. And uh, thank you again, uh, Robbie, for taking the time to join us all across the pond, as we like to say, uh, in the UK. Um, you just put Bring It On on the map. You are our furthest guest that we've interviewed. So uh, with oh, that, you, you get a, a thumbs up and, and maybe a free cup of coffee. But uh, we do thank you. <laughs> thank um, you. For our listeners who um, may never have heard of you or the work that you're involved with, um, can you acquaint our listeners with your current academic work in imperial history? Yeah, so I've been working on the history of the Black presence in Germany for roughly 15 years now. Um, I'm interested in the development of a community. So where did people come from? Why did they come to Germany in the first place? How did they come together? What social and political networks did they form? So the time period wise, we're starting in the 1880s when Germany first expands overseas into Africa. 
Uh, my time frame goes all the way up until 1945. And currently, what I'm really interested in are Black reparations claims as a result of the Holocaust. So this Nazi wartime period is absolutely front of my current research. I've been collecting reparations claims for the past five to 10 years, I say, because actually archival information about this time period is very difficult to find. And now that I have new material, I'm in the process of trying to put together a new book project. That's pretty fascinating. Um, and you mentioned that the reparations for those who suffered under the Nazi regime. Um, is this similar to what the Jewish community uh, applied for and received under reparations? It's exactly the same set of laws that um, people could apply for reparations claims. So you could be applying on the basis of being a racial victim, a political victim, um, Claims made by people of African heritage are a little bit more hit and miss, I think, in terms of those who make claims of Jewish heritage, partly because there's far less public knowledge, far less knowledge amongst the claims administrators as to who these black people are, what they suffered. So the types of payments that they receive are always a little bit mixed and some will not receive any payments. So it's not quite the same. I think it's more applicable to thinking about the Sinti and Roma, who for a long time post-45 weren't really actively seen as victims through this claims compensation policies when they're put into practice. Uh, the reparations, you're talking about monetary reparations? Yes. And so, how much? Oh, not much. Um, I think in most cases, if you were of African heritage um, and you made a claim, in all likelihood, you would only get money on the basis of your education being interrupted or your employment being interrupted. And that might equate to maybe three to 5,000 marks, which at the time is not insubstantial. And given the economic situation in West Germany, for many, this was really very important. But in terms of big payouts, this is not large. Uh, what would that equate in American dollars, three to 5,000 marks, do you know? Oh, I have no idea. But I, I, as I'm saying, I don't think this would be a huge payment. And often claims that might have been made, for example, of victims of sterilization or victims of incarceration, they wouldn't necessarily get payments on the basis of having suffered under this situation. Now, so this is what I mean. A little bit, it's hit and miss as to who gets money and who doesn't get money. Okay. I know a lot of people will be surprised to hear uh, about Blacks being incarcerated and Blacks even being in Germany at that time. Can you explain to our listening audience how Blacks come to be uh, in German and that there were German Blacks? Absolutely. So I think by 1933, when the Nazis come to power, we have a small but a diverse community. And at the heart of what I think we really can call a community, would be men from Germany's former colonies and their children and grandchildren. The majority of them arrive before the First World War. So they're coming primarily from Cameroon and especially from a coastal town known as Douala. There's some people coming from Togo. There's a smaller number from German East Africa, which would have been Tanzania. And there's maybe one or two men from German Southwest Africa, which would have been Namibia. At the same Part of this uh, community might be people from Liberia, 
Ghana, Sierra Leone, South Africa, as well as men and women from the Caribbean and some people from the United States. So we've got a community that's developing really from the 1880s. And then with the First World War breaking out, these Cameroonians and Togolese who might have come as visitors are literally stuck in Germany. There's no returning home. So consciously or otherwise, the decision is made for them that they are remaining in Europe with no option really of returning back to Africa. So by default, we have this community developing. Okay, thank you. Robbie, I uh, watched the movie Where Hands Touch. And uh, just like the writer and director, I, I came across uh, uh, that movie by first seeing a picture of a uh, group of school children, German schoolgirls, and one interracial girl uh, sitting amongst them. And so sure enough, I started to uh, dig into it a little more. And that's how I found the movie. And the movie was was very moving. I would I would highly recommend it to anyone. So just by watching you shaking your head, I'm assuming that you saw it, that you watched it. I've got a copy. My colleague worked on the movie. So uh, Ama Santi took some of her research from the work that we carried out for a book project called Black Germany. Okay. And my co-author, Eve Rosenhaft, was an historical advisor on the movie. So I wanted to ask how much did the movie uh, reflect the actual facts of the, the story back then? Wow, that's a big and a tricky question because it's frequently context dependent on what happens to people, where they were, and when it happens. So Nazi policy towards Black people is really quite ambiguous on a surface level. And it takes a bit of unpicking. So bear with me for a moment. I would say that there's maybe two strands of competing policy that the Nazis are uh, developing. So on the one hand, we have what we could call colonial revisionists or colonial paternalists. These are men who would have been in the um, former African colonies, former colonial civil servants, and who might personally know many of these black people in Germany. What they want is for the colonies to be brought back, to be renewed, a new German empire in Africa. So they're willing to tolerate the presence of black people. And that will extend to providing welfare, maybe even trying to seek employment for them, and intervening on the behalf of black men and their families in order to shelter them from the extremes of Nazi racial policy. And this is all because they would like to regain the colonial territories. Up to 1939, 1940, on the outbreak of World War II, these foreign policy hopes will temper Nazi racial policy towards black people. Uh, they have the upper hand when it comes to policy. Competing with them are the racial fanatics within the Nazi party administration. And here I'd be thinking of men such as Wilhelm Frick, who would be the Nazi minister of the interior, and later Heinrich Himmler, who is the SS Reichsführer, so the head of the security forces and the German police. They don't care about empire. What they want is a so-called Volksgemeinschaft, a people's community of racially pure so-called Aryans. And they're the ones that are behind a lot of the anti-black policy that come up in the film, such as Frick extending the Nuremberg race laws to cover black people. 
What he and others want is to prevent future generations of black Germans being born, actually black Europeans, because their policies will extend to all of occupied Europe. Once war breaks out in 1940, they have the upper hand. They are the ones that are now dictating the policy. And this is why the film, I think, is set in a concentration camp and it's after the outbreak of World War II when violence towards black people is really starting to escalate. So there's a lot, I think, of truth in the basic story upon which the film is based. Do you know why blacks were not targeted for mass killings along with, uh, with Jews? I think there's maybe multiple reasons. Anti-Semitism is clearly at the forefront of Nazi racial policy. This is absolutely for Hitler and the racial fanatics, the key target group. Nonetheless, as racial policy develops over time, other groups get drawn into it, such as the Sinti and Roma, and also black people. But black people are far smaller in numbers. I mean, I, I don't think we can talk of many more than several thousand black people in Nazi Germany who we could maybe even consider to be residents. So while there's maybe no systematic mass murder, we can still see a policy intent that's genocidal. Sterilizations, incarcerations, attempts to split up families to prevent future generations of black Germans and potentially eventually black Europeans being born. So the end goal is the same, but the methods might be slightly different. Mm. Um, what I'd also add, by 1942-43, when black Germans are again at the forefront of some Nazi officials' thoughts, the war is going badly for the Nazis. Priorities are changing and shifting. Black people have gone actively into hiding, and they're no longer necessarily a priority at a local level for policing forces to find. So had the war been prolonged, had the Nazis been successful, I think we were heading in a direction with a genocidal intent. For our listeners uh, that have just tuned in and you may have heard the movie title, Where Hands Touch, it is an imagined account of a mixed race teenager's clandestine relationship with a Hitler youth member, but it is based on historical record. And that sort of leads to my question. Uh, Robbie, if I may call you Robbie. Um, Go for it, yeah. Please shed some light, if you will, upon the rationale and means by which Blacks were banned from having relationships with white people. Uh, they were excluded from education and, and types of employment in Nazi Germany. And as an observation, not lost on us, is that this mindset mirrors African-American history in America. Uh, there's something about that interracial mixing which just brings fear to the hearts of those uh, who are in the majority rule. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I do know that the Nazis actively had an eye on what was happening in the southern states of the United States when they were thinking about aspects of the racial policy, including when they're thinking about the Nuremberg race laws. Now, I mentioned we have these competing sources of power about anti-Black policy, these colonial revisionists. The story that Ama Asante tells had a relationship taken place pre-1939, which indeed frequently did happen. Then couples would be given a choice, split up or face consequences. Because of foreign policy considerations, they were given the choice. 
after 1939, 1940, there's not a choice. You will be incarcerated. You will likely also be subject to sterilization. This might be the white partner as well as the black partner. So this is really about Nazi aims at creating this racially pure in their minds, people's community, which excludes all of those deemed to be racial outsiders, Jews, sentient Roma, black people, and also extending to homosexuals, extending to the Okay, uh, Robbie, I have a question for you. Um, and, and it sort of relates to what you just shared about uh, how blacks were tolerated and but they were sort of kept at a distance. But can you please shed some light upon the rationale and means by which blacks were banned from having relationships with white people and excluded from education and types of employment in Nazi Germany? And just as an observation and not lost amongst those here on this call, um, this mindset mirrors African-American history in America, especially with uh, how it was taboo, especially for black men to even look at a white woman without fear of um, uh, violence or death, imminent death. And then there was a concept of even eugenics which uh, was a policy that had some origins here in the city, not origins as far as it was founded here, but it was advanced here at IU back at uh, the early 1900s or, or way back in history. And, and it was adopted by the Nazi regime. So can you comment on that? Certainly, I, I do think that the Nazis, particularly the racial fanatics and the likes of Wilhelm Frick, this minister of the interior, his department do have an eye on what's happening in the southern states of the US. What I would add is that this marginalization of black people isn't just starting with the Nazis. We can see towards the end of the Weimar period, the late 1920s, early 1930s, that social, economic, political exclusion is really starting to gather pace partly because we have a Great Depression in Germany, but we see a rise of racial intolerance. So when the Nazis come into power, there's free reign to all sorts of racial fanatics, popular pre uh, prejudice, but also prejudice that's dictated from above. And what the Nazis want to create is this racially so-called pure people's community. And one means of doing that is targeting mixed relationships. First and foremost, using the Nuremberg race laws to target Jewish relationships. But then Wilhelm Frick will extend that to also target those who are of Sinti and Roma origin, but also black people, with the ultimate aim of preventing any relationships through which children can be born. This is why I'd reiterate, I think there's absolutely a genocidal intent in what the Nazis want to do. They want to prevent these future generations. Now, if you were a black German and you were in a relationship with a white partner, prior to 1939, foreign policy considerations might save you. So you will be given the option with your partner of splitting up because of this eye that the Nazis have on potentially regaining the colonies. Split up or face consequences. Once World War II breaks out, there's no choice anymore. You face the consequences. 
because the empire doesn't mean anything anymore. And these racial fanatics like Frick and later Himmler, they're the ones who are dictating policy. Okay. Um, I wanted you to comment on the propaganda campaign uh, to stereotype black soldiers at that time uh, at World War II as sexual predators. Um, and I, my dad told me the story of um, that both white American soldiers and the Nazis spread that they had tails that African-American soldiers had tails and were like monkeys. So he said it backfired on them. They thought that white German women would refrain from being friendly to the black soldiers and it had the opposite effect. Yeah. So could you tell our listening audience about that, how they said that the black soldiers were contemptible and despicable and were monkeys. I think this actually stems from the early 1920s, because during the 1920s, part of Germany called the Rhineland will be occupied by the French as a result of the Treaty of Versailles and the failure of the Germans to meet some of the treaty obligations. And the French deliberately use colonial troops from West Africa and from North Africa as a means of humiliation. Germany, the colonizing power, is now being colonized. And during that time period, there's a really rabidly horrendous anti-Black campaign against the use of those troops. Propaganda films are made, um, all sorts of imagery is used, racial rhetoric is used. It's something that's known as the so-called Black shame, the Schwarze Schmach. And it's an international campaign. So there, it's not just the Germans who are campaigning against the French using these troops. It equally finds sympathy in the United States. And what we see then, not only does this campaign impact on black people in Germany, but it's already created images, words, rhetoric that are ripe for reuse under the Nazis. So when the French and the Nazis start fighting in the summer of 1940, and around about 100,000 French colonial troops are again employed against the Germans. This racist rhetoric comes back to the forefront. And there's a degree to which even that has an afterlife. And that's when African-Americans are stationed in Germany, in West Germany, post-1945. And concerns about so-called miscegenation and mixed marriages are again trumped up in the media by politicians, etc. So I think it's originally coming from the 20s, but it has such a long afterlife. You know, I, I may have, and, and I just want to jump in to clarify something. I did sort of drop a, a concept of eugenics and origins with Indiana University, but there was a proponent uh, back in the day, as we say, of eugenics, and that was former Indiana University President David Starr Jordan, uh, whose name had been removed or will be removed from some of the buildings here in Bloomington. And it just so happens that uh, back around, well, he was president from 1885 to 1891, but he was a proponent of such things as uh, just uh, not letting races mix um, and just discriminating against other things related to being a darker hue. And so there was just an active advocacy about selective breeding for sterilization and immigration restrictions under the umbrella of the eugenics movement, which was a movement here uh, in the Midwest and in other places in the country, but it was prominent here at IU. Some of the 
some of those who were viewed as uh, uh, being the leaders in thought were proponents of something that now is despicable. So I just want to add that clarification. I know that some of our scholars do listen in, but do the research, do the study, you will find it. Okay, I'm sorry. I think I yield to William at this point. But I think that's a good point because eugenics is an international movement. It's one in which thinkers across many parts of the Western world are sharing and comparing ideas who are developing an agenda that's about selective breeding. And we can see this ultimately in Nazi policy towards black people. So one group of people we've, we've not mentioned are those children who are born to these French colonial troops stationed in the Rhineland in the 1920s. There are a number of relationships. Frequently, um, this is viewed by the German authorities as being forced sexual relationships, although there's almost no evidence for this whatsoever. And out of these relationships are born some six to 800 children, so-called Rhineland children. And they feature very prominently in Nazi racial thought. By 1935, Wilhelm Frick, this racial fanatic, the Minister of the Interior, calls a meeting of a number of Nazi departments and state departments to specifically ask, what do we do about these children? They're a visible reminder of the humiliation of World War I. They are reaching puberty and potentially sexual maturity. And at that discussion, it's actively decided to sterilize them. And they know that there is no legislation that covers that. None of the Nazi legislation already brought in would allow them to do this. So it's done literally under the cover of darkness in 1937, when at least 385 of the children are sterilized. At that same meeting, interestingly, they also discuss what do we do with the children of Cameroonians, Togolese, East Africans? Because of foreign policy considerations and fears that the international community could jump on this, they decide not to blanketly sterilize them, but instead to use the Nuremberg race laws as a potential different way of getting around that. The difference with the Rhineland children is they're seen as an internal problem. They grow up the illegitimate children of white German women. Uh, the Nazis don't believe that anyone in the international community will care about these children. Many of the French troops have no knowledge of the fact they fathered children. The French authorities are clearly not interested. So the Nazis think they can get away with taking sterilization as an action against these children, as opposed to potentially upsetting foreign policy rivals should they take action against Cameroonians, Togolese, Liberians, etc. When you look at uh, American history versus German history, uh, when you look at the racial components of it, e each one of them, uh, each government implemented uh, racism in a different way. But the attitudes were not that far apart. How would you describe the difference between the way that the Nazis uh, came to treat blacks during that same during that time period versus the American government during that same time period? How, how would you best describe that? The differences between the two. I think the big difference is this colonial past that the Germans had. 
uh, the fact that the Germans, some Germans really want to regain the colonial territories. And as I said, that very much tempers policy because they've always got this eye on, okay, we want the colonies back. These people could be spokespeople for us if we tolerate them. If we take action, it could have um, real repercussions for any chance of regaining Cameroon or regaining Namibia. So we need to be careful how we treat them. You can't openly discriminate. They are aware that these men and women are sending mail back and forth to family and friends in Africa. And they are actually scared about what consequences that could have. They were concerned about actions that they were taking against Liberians because Liberia was um, a trade partner for Germany. And not a huge one, but one that was still important. There is a Liberian consulate in Hamburg. So I think that foreign policy makes it much more difficult for radical action to take place. The other thing I'd say is when African-Americans went to Germany, particularly during the late 1920s, but also during the Nazi periods, it's an eye-opening experience for many of them because suddenly they can enjoy freedoms that they couldn't in the US South. They can go into pubs, bars, hotels that white people go into. They can talk to white women. They could, certainly maybe up until the early 30s, sleep with white women and not necessarily face consequences. So I think that experience is very eye-opening. And I think when you see what some African-Americans say about Germany, and particularly Nazi Germany, W.E.B. Du Bois was in Germany in the 1890s and again the 1930s. And he sees Germany as this place of philosophers and thinkers and these intellectual giants, but he's not living in Germany. So his experience is different from those who are resident and facing that day-to-day -day racism that's clearly increasing. So I, I think to my mind, the big difference is this qualifying foreign policy eye that the Nazis have up until 39 and 40, when war breaks out and, you know, Foreign policy be damned. We want the world. We don't want an empire. Getting back to um, where hands touch, which sort of sort of shines a light on that dynamic. Um, and again, if if you just joined us, the, the movie for Hands Touch, uh, it's it's an imagined account of a mixed race teenager's clandestine, secretive relationship with a Hitler Youth member but it is based on historical record. The, the director, Amal Sante, um, in going around to lecture about this movie, had a particular reaction from the, the, um, the questions from the audience and just how they received what she was sharing. She said, there's often a form of disbelief of questioning, sometimes even a dismissiveness of the difficult lives these people led. And so, Robbie, can you comment on whether there is an attempt to erase or whitewash this element of Nazi German history? That's a good question. Again, I think that's quite a tricky one. I'd agree with aspects of the statement. So when I began working in this field in the late 1990s, I would frequently be met with complete disbelief when I told people in Germany what I was doing. And that extended also to archives. The very first archive I ever visited was in Bavaria. I told them in advance I was coming. I was very excited what I was doing. And when I got there, um, they completely forgotten I was coming. So I explained again, I was looking for the presence of black people in Bavaria and in Germany. 
Uh, and the archivist who was sent to deal with me literally said, but there were no black people in Germany. <laughs> so three years later, I could say conclusively in your own town where he was based, there were at least five families, at very least. But I think certainly at that time, that would be the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a clear disbelief. And I would say that Germany, like many European states, can be seen as being guilty of a colonial amnesia or a colonial aphasia. So a forgetting or a disremembering of the colonial past. And in Germany, part of that's to do with the enormity of the Holocaust. But it has meant that in forgetting the colonial history, there's been a collective forgetting that Germany ever had a black population, which stemmed from these very colonies from the 1880s or so onwards. Instead, I'd say there's a persistent distorted perception that black German history begins in 1945 when African-American troops are stationed in West Germany, or it begins in the 1980s in East Germany when guest workers from Mozambique and Angola and children from Mozambique and Namibia come for educational purposes. There has been, and I think continues this sheer disbelief and a disbelief that people can be both black and German. That is starting to change. Every now and again, there's kind of a wave of academic output and activist output, and you think this will be the moment when it reaches a real public discussion. And in the 1980s, it's really black German activist academics themselves who are driving this. So someone like Katrina Ogentoya, or the late Mayaim, a poet and academic activist, were really influential in trying to recover the past. I think there's been a new momentum, though, since the things that have been happening in the States with Black Lives Matter, with George Floyd. There has been a real activism amongst many Black Germans and their allies. And this has been academic activists, grassroots initiatives, political pressure groups, they are trying to lead the discussion. Uh, they are trying to make maturity society wake up and engage critically with colonial history, but also with the fact that this is interlinked with black history in Germany. We, we did notice that uh, last summer in 2020, uh, the peaceful protest movement was not just confined to America, but all around the, all, all around the globe. And I, I believe um, in Germany, there were shots of massive numbers of people protesting injustices heaped on uh, people of color. Now it did branch off from just blacks to others who maybe Indians. And, and then there was the, uh, what has been contended has been the immigration into Germany and Europe by, by masses of people from other countries. And there's been a mighty resistance to that, but. Um, it was it was sort of refreshing and heartening to see that around the globe, people are taking up to say, hey, look, uh, justice is justice and equity is equity and um, all this madness needs to stop. So um, I, I, I just want to also say that as I sit here and listen to you talk about the history in 1945, there, there were a lot of blacks involved in the resistance, the Nazi resistance. And from what I understand, um, there was uh, sort of the Northwest Ron resistance group. If you're familiar with that, if you can comment on that. Yeah, uh, this group I think exists in the late 1880s, early 1890s. Okay. So 
during the actual Nazi period, there's no organized black resistance. There are individuals who are involved in the resistance. There were political black movements that were pan-African in outlook and absolutely interlinked with black groups across Europe and also to the United States in the late 1920s. So one example would be the League for the Defense of the Negro Race, which was composed of largely men from Cameroon, but also from Togo, uh, that was anti-imperial. It was anti-racist. It was sponsored by the Comintern in Moscow, as many of these radical black activist groups were. It was networked to a sister group in Paris. Uh, Members had met Russell Abbott from the Chicago Defender. They had met J.A. Rogers, who'd visited Germany in the late 1920s, and they were part of a discussion of a global black movement. But once the Nazis come to power, that's all over. They're shut down. The head of the group, a man called Victor Bell from Douala, will spend several days in one of these first Nazi wild camps, so the forerunners to concentration camps. George Padmore, who'd run the magazine The Negro Worker from Hamburg, is forced to flee to um, eventually to, to Britain. So any organized black resistance is, is killed stone dead when the Nazis come to power. And actually, most social networks are increasingly killed dead. Instead, we see various individuals who find their way into organized resistance groups. But, you know, that's a huge risk to take, particularly as a black person, because you are visible on the streets, which is why most are really in hiding by 42, 43 or so onwards. Um. In, in England in 1943, I think there's a little town called Bamber Bridge in Lancaster. Could be. I, I don't know if, okay. <laughs> um, what they did uh, when the black and white soldiers, American soldiers were there, the white American soldiers were upset that the black American soldiers are sitting in the pubs with them. So the town said, you know, we really like our, the black American soldiers. So what they did is put up signs that said blacks only. They, they told America, you can't implement your laws here for us to follow. So they did the complete opposite. And when I heard that, I love that. <laughs> so, uh, and you're unaware of that particular story that happened in England? I'm not, but you, you can see elements of that happening in post 45 Germany when you have African-American troops stationed in in West Germany. Mm -hmm. There are parts of German society who um, absolutely want to get to meet African-Americans, who want to engage with black people. There are women who now have a bit more sexual freedom and are able to choose their partners and who want to socialize with African-Americans. And we have some of these resident African Germans, black Germans who've been living in Germany for three, four decades, who are also opening up clubs that African-American soldiers go to. So uh, you see elements of what, what you're, you're talking about in that situation in, in Britain. Do you, uh, the first time I've heard that there were blacks in Germany, 
I think it was uh, a singing group back in the 80s. You remember Manila, Vanilla? Oh, Millie, yeah, yeah. Clarence. <laughs> Millie Vanilla. Yeah. Yeah, you remember? I, I think I got the name right, but it was yeah. two young, good looking guys. And it came out that um, they really couldn't sing. Yeah. <laughs> but they had won all of these awards that had to be rescinded because. They could. They couldn't barely speak English. They they couldn't sing. Well, but they brought they, attention to uh, lip syncing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes, they did. Now, and I thought when they said they were from, they were German. We go what? Black Germans? So uh, that I believe that was in the eighties. So uh, I have another question, but I'll wait for my next turn if I got time. Well, I was going to say you could go a hundred years before that, and you're already seeing the first Black Germans. You're already seeing people who are coming over. Um, I mean, I think there's a false sense of who these people were who came to begin with. Many of them come from the African elite. And this is why these colonial administrators know them, because their families are important. So, for example, we have um, several dozen, if not, in fact, no, over a hundred young men who have been sent for educational purposes by their parents, at their parents' expense. And that costs... Now, I do know what this costs in these terms. It costs more than the annual wage of a German worker for one of these school children to be educated. And this is telling you how wealthy these families were. We have people who come as servants, but they too might also be from the elite because one of the ways in which African families and the colonial authorities worked together was that the families would place a child in the care of a colonial administrator or a doctor or a civil servant as a way of cementing a relationship. And a reward for this servant, this child for doing well, might be to take them to Germany. So there's a whole lot of different types of people who are coming to Germany. This is not a forced movement of people. In most cases, this is a voluntary movement that takes place pre-1914. It's simply the fact that the war breaks out in 14 that strands many of them there. And they simply cannot get back to Africa. Okay. No, two Listening to uh, some of the questions and comments about the propaganda that was spread about uh, black soldiers in Germany, it, it really made me reflect on my early years in the military. Back in the uh, mid-70s, um, we were overseas. I was on a Navy ship at the time. The night before we pulled into uh a place in Australia, our senior leaders came down. And th the reason I'm saying this is because that myth existed all the way up until then. Our senior leaders came down and gathered all the blacks together and warned us, you guys got to be careful when you go out here. These people don't like you. They would do this, that, and the other. And once we got to shore and left the ship, that could not have been further from the truth. We were welcomed with open arms. They took us into their homes. Let us call home all the way back to the States and just treated us like royalty. And that happened in several places that we visited uh, when I was overseas. Um, but something else I wanted to ask you about, Robbie, um, when you talk about the forced sterilization campaign, it kind of made me wonder how successful that was and, and did it, uh, what impact did it have, if any, on the, on the Black German population today? Was it 100% successful? Did they eradicate uh, any, all the bloodlines? Or what, what was left over after that sterilization campaign? 
Sure. So I would say it's only systematically applied to these so-called Rhineland children. And of the six to 800, at least 385 are known to be sterilized. One of the difficulties we have when looking at Nazi policy towards black people and Nazi policy in general from 1940 to 45, many of the records have simply been destroyed. They're covering their tracks. So trying to work out the ultimate fate of individuals is very difficult. Those who I would call as part of this resident community, so the Cameroonians, the Togolese, the East Africans, their children and grandchildren, some of them are sterilized. Some of them are threatened with sterilization. Some are incarcerated. And clearly the black German community that emerges post-45 is much smaller than it was pre-33. That said, there are still people who survive the period. Um, I think there is a collective trauma in many ways in that we don't see fifth, sixth, seventh generation in a number of families, but we still can see some of those families whose line can be traced back to the 1880s living in Germany today. The majority of whom don't really speak about their experiences anymore, um, but it's not in any way at a complete extermination of these different uh, family groups. There are still some present today who survived post-45. William brought up the, um, the military, his experiences in the military, and there are accounts of, of Blacks serving in the German military, if I'm not mistaken, or how, how vast a number of Blacks served in the military there. And I, then I have a follow-up to that. Sure. So I'll start by firstly saying in the First World War, there are quite a few um, men who will serve in the German army in Europe. Um, there will also be during the Nazi period, but... I would, I would put a big but with this. Some will be called up, conscripted, particularly when the war is going wrong and every person is being called up to serve in the military. They will literally be conscripted and given call-up papers. Uh, there are very few, as far as I'm aware, actually fight on the front. And I think there's got to be a difference drawn between fighting for Germany and fighting for the Nazis. Many of those people who've lived their entire life in Germany, who've been born there, who've been socialized there, they want to believe they have an affinity to Germany. That is their homeland. The psychological difficulty for them is that they're being told by the Nazis that they are not part of this great new people's community that is being created. And particularly for young people, it takes quite some time to recognize that. Because they too are filled with enthusiasm about Hitler coming to power like the whole nation is. They want to be part of this great big German renewal. So I think we have to see this involvement in the, in the military a little bit like that. It's their relationship to Germany, less so than seeing any kind of relationship to the Nazi state. And particularly when you're being bombarded with propaganda about your state being under attack. So there clearly are a handful, but not many, young men who will be called up and who will serve. And, and along those same lines, I want to follow up by saying, uh, we, we spoke at length about the colonization of Africa that went on. Um, and with any group that wants to colonize, usually it's mineral resources or land acquisition or, or whatever. In the case of um, Nazi Germany, 
was the um, motivation for colonizing major portions? Uh, thanks, Robbie, for answering. Um, I have a follow-up, and that deals with colonization. We talked, or you talked at length, about uh, how Africa was colonized. Can you explain some of the, the reasoning for the, the Germans, Germans branching off into to Africa the way they did? Certainly. So, uh, again, I think there's multiple reasons. Some are economic, um, a desire to protect economic interests that are already developing in Africa, particularly in the west coast of Africa, where you've got German trade with a number of African population groups. Um, I think like a lot of European colonizers, they are dreaming of what the African interior might bring, rich resources, new markets. I certainly think that nationalism, which is on the rise across Europe at this time period, is important. Germany is a newly unified country. It wants a place at the table alongside Britain and France as being key global powers. So that too plays into it. Um, I think to a far lesser extent, as a, at least the psychological justification is this notion of the colonizing mission that um, Europeans have a right to morally raise up what they see as inferior peoples. And I think there's also a flip side of that, a Darwinistic, social Darwinistic worldview point that it is essential to colonize in order to compete. If you have the might, you have the right, and you can take land resources, put people to work through a belief that you know better. And this is going way back to kind of the very beginnings of some of the real crass racial thought that develops through the enlightenment and so onwards, that the world can be divided into areas where different population groups live and a belief of European, white European male superiority. Um, I would like to know if, uh, how do you compare Germany with its relationship with its black residents then, and how is Germany today with its black residents? How is it to be black in Germany today? That's a question I don't really like answering because I'm, I'm not living in Germany and I'm not a person of color, so I can only observe from a, from a distance. I certainly think that, as I mentioned, there is much more of a movement to critically engage with colonial history. There's much more, I think, a strength in numbers of a black community that's very organized, that's politicized, that is very active. I do think that we see the rise of right-wing movements in Germany, just as we see in a number of European states. We've got this party that's called the Alternative for Germany, the AFD, which is a crass, racist, anti-migration party that has done pretty well over the last couple of years, partly linked to Germany's policy to open its borders and allow in a large number of asylum seekers but also off the back of anti-Muslim feeling. So I think being a person of color in Germany from a distance, my, my feeling is that it's still very difficult. Uh, William, anyone else have a question? Yeah, I have a question. Robbie, I wanted to ask you, what inspired your research? Oh my word, that is a long and difficult question. I am, I, I mean, I come from Scotland. And in school, we always did either English history or we did 
German history. And I found looking at the Weimar Republic, the kind of historical what-ifs of that, much more exciting than looking at electoral reform in England. So when I went to university, I started doing more and more German history. I thought I knew everything about German history. And then my PhD supervisor said, wait a minute, why don't you look and see if we can find evidence of a black community? And at that time, I think there was only one book had ever been written about this. My German was miserable. I was given this book by my professor and I had spent lots of hours with a dictionary in one hand, the book on the other, reading this incredible biography of a Cameroonian man who'd come to Hamburg in the 1890s and who had lived through to 1943 and had children and grandchildren. And I just remember thinking, how do I not know any of this? Where is this in my German history? Because this was a completely different perspective. And I think the more that I had the opportunity to research into his life and other people's lives, the more complex and fascinating these stories became. I mean, there's many things we haven't touched on. I mean, if I could just give you one story that really gripped me, was a Cameroonian young man who came from Douala to be educated uh, in Germany in 1912, trained to be an architect. War breaks out, he's stuck. So he fights for the German army. At the end of the war, he doesn't know what to do. He can't get a job, so he goes to Vienna. He reinvents himself as a performer. He's on the stage with Josephine Baker. He leaves Vienna. He goes to Berlin. He's on the stage with Paul Robeson. He now decides to be a, com a communist. He creates this political group, the League for the Defense of the Negro Race. George Padmore, this great commentator and activist, takes him under his tutelage, sends him to Moscow, and there, he's in the same classroom as Jomo Kenyatta, seen as being a real future potential political leader. Now, that doesn't happen because he leaves Moscow and he can't go back to Nazi Germany because the Nazis are there. So he never sees his partner and his two children again. He goes to Paris, where he meets political activists there. And eventually, he's kicked out by the French and sent back to Cameroon, where he's not been for a long, long time. And suddenly, for the first time in decades, a kind of quietness creeps into his life. And I think he simply just enjoys not having to look over his shoulder for the police or the authorities and simply lives out the rest of his life. But it's just an incredible story that shows you how the lives of these individuals touch much bigger stories about pan-Africanism, black internationalism, uh, Nazi history, anti-colonial history, all of these things. How could you not be excited by that? So this is why I still do the job. We have about a couple minutes left before we end um, this segment of the interview. Uh, Robbie, what have we not touched on that you want our listeners to, to be aware of in about 90 seconds? So one thing I'd say is there's a controversial line of argument that the colonial period leads to the Nazi period. I don't think it's that straightforward. One thing we haven't talked about is the first Nazi genocide. And that's the genocide of the Herero and Nama population groups in German Southwest Africa, where there is a systematic attempt to commit mass murder of these two populations. And when we do have the first German concentration camps. So there are clearly parallels and we can see that the Nazis are picking and choosing from racial th theory across Europe and the United States, but they're also thinking about empire and what happens in empire. And I think that's, it's important that people know that there is a prehistory to some of these things. 
And can you wow. uh, tell the listening audience again, what was the name of those two groups that that they started? Yeah, so from 1904 to 1908, there's a war against the Herero and against the Nama. And the Herero actually lodged reparations claims against the German state and German businesses in the United States about four years ago, five years ago. These claims have now been rejected. But this is what's driving activist interaction engagement with the German colonial past at the moment in Germany. Wow. Well, on that note, we want to thank Dr. Robbie Aiken, Professor of Imperial History at Sheffield Hallam University, University in the UK, and Liz Mitchell, our Bring It On producer, Dark Past, Bright Future, for educating us on the rarely discussed topic of Blacks in Nazi Germany. Portions of our conversation were inspired by the film Where Hands Touch. That explores the persecution of Black and mixed race people under the Nazis. The film's writer and director, Ama Asante, was inspired by a photo of a black schoolgirl taken in Nazi Germany. The film can be accessed via Amazon Prime. Uh, we did reach out to Ama Asante, have not heard back yet, but we'll, we'll keep trying. I'd love to have a conversation with her. Bring Thanks it so on. Much for having me. Bring it on has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, we would love to hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. We also want to make sure we share any and everything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, bring it on at WFHB.org. If you have an event or happening the African-American community should know about, please send the info directly to the Bring It On staff. Or if you want additional information about tonight's guest, contact, contact us at bringingon at wfhb.org. Our show's executive producer is Clarence Boone. Assistant producer is yours truly. Our consultant and WFHB News Department director is Mr. Cade Young. Program engineer is Chantal LaFontaine. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effium with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm William Hosea. And for Liz Mitchell, I'm Clarence Boone. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.